When I was in graduate school studying um, counseling psychology, it dawned on me one day that the um, real need in people's lives was for truth. Now, I had been a Christian, of course, for 40 years at that point, uh, and so it wasn't like a news flash, but it, it certainly helped me to get some great clarity that what people were laboring under and their need for counseling, whether they were suffering from trauma or family pain and relational pain or from addictions, was they had some point upon some uh, area of their life bought a lie. They had bought a lie about who God is, about who they are, about the people around them, who they are. They bought a, a lie that helped them develop a worldview for themselves that was toxic. And so the real thing that we do in pastoral counseling is we combat the lie. And we do that, of course, with truth. We do that with biblical truth. Jesus made it clear to some people who had confessed belief in him that they would truly show themselves to be his disciples if they continued in his word. For if they did so, they would come to know the truth, and the truth would set them free. So it is truth that we want. Now, the problem comes is that there are we live in a culture, a, a world filled with not only the lie, but with lies. And we also live in a... Um, church culture that is tainted with the, all the yeast of uh, false teaching, traditionalism, uh, various and sundry uh, systems of theology, all of which have their own take on the Bible. But very rarely, sadly, very rarely is our people in the Christian world allowing the Bible to be what it says it is and to say what it says without having to bring to it some form of uh, tradition, some form of presupposition, which is then imposed on the text through which we read the text and then think we have uh, biblical truth, when in fact what we have is a reading of our tradition into the text. Now, Recently, I was watching a video, it just happened to come across my feed, uh, by Doreen Virtue uh, in her uh, YouTube site, of a theological professor named Scott uh, Anyon, I think his name is, Scott Annual, I'm sorry, Annual. And they're discussing the film The Chosen, and, uh, and anybody that knows me knows I'm not for The Chosen. Uh, and I'll explain why again in a few minutes. But I agree with everything that they were saying about that film and about the the danger of it uh, and how it, it will form an image of Jesus that is not a biblical image of Jesus. And we already have enough going on that we don't need to start trying to draw truth from cinema, draw truth from art or statuary, or places where they are presenting images of us to Christ that aren't Christ. That we do have the scriptures, we have the gospels, but the problem comes inasmuch that there's still this propensity to even deal with issues like the chosen through a lens of tradition instead of through biblical 
truth. And you'll see what I'm referring to in just a moment here. So I'm going to play you a clip of this interview between Doreen Virtue and Scott Annual, uh, Dr. Scott Annual, and and then we'll talk about it, and, uh, uh, and I, I think you'll see what I mean. Interview started on April 25th when Dr. Annual posted on social media, and maybe you saw this because it went viral. He posted this, don't give in and watch the chosen. Your imagination will forever be shaped by the visceral potency of a cinematic interpretation of Bible narratives, and it will therefore be much more difficult to allow the words of scripture to shape your imagination. God gave us words. Now, I agree with everything that was just said there. Absolutely. If we are going to allow our image of Jesus to be formed by by man-made art and by cinema and by images, then we're going to have a hard time uh, uh, in our spiritual life, uh, because there's there's just a, a false image at work, and it's really really difficult to get rid of those once we get them into our heads. So, I have no problem with what they're saying. What I have a problem with is their tact about why they are saying it and what they should do about it. So let's listen in again. A truth bomb there, and it, I shared it on my social media. Many people did, and then it started a conversation, and Dr. Annual. Uh, on his By the Waters of Babylon podcast, explained how this was really a second commandment issue. So I wondered if we could talk about that first of all, Dr. Annual. Yes, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to a good conversation. Yes, thanks for being with us. So most of us are familiar with the Ten Commandments, and we're just going to acknowledge right off the bat for anyone not aware, it's still for today. Jesus <laughs> fulfilled this the ceremonial laws, and he, the, the Ten Moral Laws are still for today. Is that correct? Yeah, I would say they 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 embody uh, universal principles that yeah absolutely apply today. Okay. Now here's the first problem. Uh, immediately, <laughs> instead of looking to the text of Scripture itself, now you can say, well, they're looking to the Bible, they're looking to the Ten Commandments, but they're looking through the lens of tradition. And what I mean by that is that they're looking through this trifecta, this tri part division of the law. Doreen is immediately trying to impose what they call the moral law or the Ten Commandments on the listener by by this um, tradition that says that the law was fulfilled, that Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law, and that the civil law, the theocracy, does not apply anymore. Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law, but the moral law of the Ten Commandments still applies. Now, there's an element of truth in that, but the problem is we keep seeing the law, first of all, as a three-part division, which the Bible does not give at all. That was a teaching of Thomas Aquinas, a Roman Catholic theologian, that was then passed down through the Reformation, which the Reformers failed to remedy. And in fact, they propagated this teaching that somehow the law is divided into three parts and that Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law. So we're not, we're not supposed to be subject to the ceremonial law any longer. However, we are, or nor the civil law, but we are, of course, uh, 
subject to the Ten Commandments because that's the moral law. The problem is is that the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that, that, that there's certain parts of the law that we're supposed to keep and the other parts we can dismiss. In fact, Paul in the letter to the Galatians was incredibly uh, emphatic on this point. He says, in fact, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 2, Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. Not just the ceremonial, not just the civil, not just a so-called moral law. Paul would have not recognized that language at all. He would not have recognized this three-part division in the law. You who are trying to be justified by the law, Paul goes on to say, have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. So there is no three-part division of the law. And the deception here is in the, um, uh, quite frankly, in the Reformation tradition that teaches that we are still subject to the law. And while they have to backtrack, they know that they can't sell us on having to keep the ceremonial law or the civil law, so they'll, they'll follow Thomas Aquinas. They won't follow Paul. You see the point there? They're following some Roman Catholic theologian that was drugged into the Reformation in order to maintain the Ten Commandments as a tool that uh, Calvin said as, it was served as a whip upon the Christian person to keep them in line. And that was all about the state church. One of the great failures of the Reformation was the continuance of the state church, where the, 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 the populace within the church were baptized citizens of the state, and that state church was largely a, a group of unregenerate people who were good, obedient, compliant churchgoers, but they were unregenerate. They weren't the body of Christ. They were the state church. Now, if you have that kind of a populace, if that's the people who make up your church, then there's going to be problems with um, uh, the flesh. There's going to be problems with people acting out, and there's going to be moral failure, moral decadence, moral behavior, immoral behavior. And so you have to have some kind of an external control. And so they reinstituted this three-part division of the law to use the Ten Commandments as a, a weapon to force people into some kind of moral behavior of conduct. But it has nothing to do with Christianity. It has nothing to do with the new covenant in which the law is written on the hearts and minds of believers. So I agree with everything they're saying here about the chosen. But I disagree emphatically, and you should too. I'm trying to spare you here. This is another point where they're saying, well, there's two biblical reasons why we shouldn't watch The Chosen. Let's go on now to listen to what they say those biblical, quote-unquote, reasons are. Great. So the first commandment, we all know, you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment is about idolatry. And you 
major podcast in view of The Chosen. And I wondered if you could give us uh, an outline of that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, really the fundamental reason that I would uh, avoid a show like this or really any images of God, pictures on the wall, stained glass windows, uh, you know, some people even uh, were making comments on social media. Well, do you, do, you, do you avoid children's Bibles with pictures of Jesus too? And they, they were saying it sort of tongue-in-cheek as, you know, as if certainly you don't. And my reply is, yes, we do. We avoid any images of, of God. Uh, and it's really rooted, first and foremost, fundamentally in the issue of the second commandment, is we sort of assume that the second commandment is just a restatement of the first commandment almost. Like the first commandment says, don't worship any false gods. And the second commandment basically says the same thing, but just focuses on idols. When in reality, no, that's not, that's not what uh, God is giving us. These are two distinct commandments. The first commandment already takes care of the prohibition against. Now, who were those commandments given to? Scott? That would be the question you should ask, my friends. As a new covenant Christian, as those who are in Christ, uh, this man is is well intended. I'm not saying he's evil or he's or he's bad or he's any of that kind of thing. I'm just saying he's wrong. <laughs> he's an error. He doesn't have a proper covenantal and eschatological framework for the uh, gospel. He's still referring us back to the law. Now. Uh, are the first and second commandments or any of the Ten Commandments um, uh, legitimate? Of course they are. They're, they're scripture. But they're, they, they are part and parcel, and they, are the, they represent inherently the essence of the Old Covenant. Very important to understand. And, and this, as I just said, this attempt to try to divide the law into three different parts where Paul says clearly that that uh, anyone who try, partakes in any one part of the law is obligated to keep the whole law, not just the moral law, the whole law. The problem is law versus the work of the Spirit. That's the biblical contrast. Now, this is, again, very important in Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus said it very clearly that he had not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And he said that, and he reminded this, that not one little jot or tittle, one, not one least stroke, pen stroke, of the law would um, be um, put away with until all was fulfilled. So Jesus himself would not have used this language of dividing the law into three parts. For truly I tell you, Jesus says in Matthew 5.18, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. The law is the law. The law had an incredibly important role to play in redemptive history, but it was a temporal role. And with the coming of Christ and with the inauguration of the new covenant consecrated in Christ's blood at the cross, the role of the old covenant was fulfilled. The law then was not done away with, but fulfilled. And it was fulfilled 
um, in the death and resurrection of Christ, and in now in you and I who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, the righteous requirement of the law has been and is being fulfilled within us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's Romans 8, 3, and 4. So this is very important. We don't look to the external law, tablets of stone. We don't look to the Ten Commandments as our rule of life. We don't look to the Ten Commandments as our uh, guide for sanctification. What do we do? How, where, where is it that we can rely? To whom do we look or to what do we look? Paul says it very clear again in Galatians, in Galatians 5.16. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But according to this ethic that Dr. Uh, I I can't pronounce his name. Anyway, Elion is um, promoting. That text really should read, so I say, walk by the Ten Commandments, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. See, it's well-intended. I understand. It was well-intended. It's just error. It's just wrong. It is a complete and unequivocal, undeniable um, error and a failure to understand the covenantal and eschatological content of the gospel. Now, let me just continue with this clip just a little bit further. Worship of false gods... So the first commandment deals with who we are to worship. The second commandment deals with how, and specifically in the case of the worship of the true God, how we are not to worship. We are- okay, so who's, who's we, Scott? That's, what I, that's the point I was trying to make earlier. Who's, who's we? He's using the Ten Commandments and speaking of it that we, that the first two commandments deal with how we are, who we are to worship and how we are to worship. But he keeps referring to we as if we are Israel, uh, Old Covenant Israel. We are ancient Israel. That Those commandments were given not to the church. When Moses came down from Sinai, he did not give those commandments to the church of Jesus Christ. He gave those commandments to the nation of Israel, to the Hebrew nation. Those were part and parcel of the theocratic nation of Israel. So to say that we are given the law is a misnomer. It's simply a failure to understand again. Now, can we learn things from the law? Can we better understand redemptive history from the law? Of course. There's great value in reading Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. It's a little dry in places. (laughs) And Deuteronomy. But is great value in understanding uh, the foundation of redemptive history and the revelation of God's character. So there's, it, 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 it is scripture. That's not the point I'm making. The point I'm making is that the old covenant is not what we look to. We look to the new covenant. Remember, we are not under the old covenant. The old covenant has not been... Um, done away with, it has been fulfilled in the new covenant. So to keep saying that God tells us that we are supposed to worship according to the Ten Commandments, he's not speaking to us there. That text originally 
written by Moses was not to the church. It was written to Israel. Very important to understand that. Why is it important? Because, as Paul says, he is a minister. The, the apostles became ministers of a new covenant of the Spirit, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but of the Spirit, but the Spirit gives life. Let me put it this way. The Spirit's presence within you is the promise of the new covenant fulfilled. And the Spirit himself is God's sufficiency for the new covenant life of the Christian. The Spirit himself is, in fact, the replacement for the external law. You can read in Ezekiel 36, where the prophet says very clearly that God will remove a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh, that he will place his spirit within us and cause us to keep his laws and his decrees. So that's why Paul can say with such clarity in Romans 8, 3, and 4, that the righteous requirement of the law has now been fulfilled in us. Beautiful. So we don't want to worship images. We don't want to have false images in the cinema or the artwork or the statuary because for one simple reason, the Lord Jesus, the Spirit of Christ within us does not lead us to do that kind of thing. The world will. But, but simply putting a, a Old Covenant prohibition against it as a reason we don't do it is falling way short of the New Testament remedy for idolatry. Listen carefully now. Israel had the Ten Commandments from the time of Sinai. They understood who they were to worship and uh, and how they were to worship based upon those first two commandments that Dr. Scott is laying out here. But it, those commandments did not, please hear me now, they did not keep Israel from falling into idolatry over and over and over and over again to the point where they ended up in exile into Babylon. So, just the presence of two commandments in the Ten Commandments in Exodus does not mean that that's going to happen. We can't look to the, the two commandments in the, in the law and say this is, this is all it takes. We can, we can see it. We need something more than that. And God's sufficiency for that need is the indwelling Holy Spirit who writes those laws on our hearts and on our minds. But you will find in this interview that Doreen is doing with uh, Dr. Alion here that there's no mention of that. There's no mention of the New Covenant at all. There's no mention of the, of the work of the Spirit at all. It's just, we don't want to watch The Chosen because it violates the first two commandments. You would think she was interviewing a rabbi and not a Christian professor. Pretty fascinating. There's one more thing that happens in this interview that I want to share with you. Hold on just a moment. We'll just, let's listen to that. 
not to worship him through any visual representations, these sort of graven images. Uh, we are not to come to know him that way. Um, and what's interesting, and I, I uh, didn't deal with this in my own podcast, but uh, even the numbering of the Ten Commandments differs between, for instance, Roman Catholics and Protestant traditions in the Reformed tradition. Uh, Roman Catholics combine the first two commandments into one because they don't want to see that second commandment as a prohibition of visual images of, of the divine. And then they separate, I think, do, do not covet your neighbor's house and do not covet your neighbor's wife as two separate commandments. So they still end up with 10. When we got to the Reformation, Calvin and others, especially in the Reformed tradition, went back to the traditional numbering and saying, no, the first two commandments are distinct commandments. And the second commandment then is uh, prohibiting uh, wor worship of God, certainly, but even things that would lead us to worship uh, that are visual representations of God. And, and, and so, you know, uh, I would argue, and again, I'm not, this is not anything new. This is, this has been argued at least since Calvin in the sort of that Reformation tradition, that we ought not uh, visualize God, any persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, or Spirit, in a visual way, uh, even if we're saying, I'm not, I'm not worshiping that actor, or I'm not worshiping that picture. Okay, so he's really pitting Roman Catholic tradition against uh, Reformed tradition. He's not providing you a true New Testament solution to the problem. Now, he has identified the problem, and I agree with him wholeheartedly on this issue of whether we should watch The Chosen or not. That's not the point. The problem is Scott's um, remedy. And so he's pitting Reformed tradition against Catholic tradition. And I'm, I admit that I am a Baptist. <laughs> I admit that I am a, uh, if anything, my roots go back into the Anabaptist tradition. So I'm not much of a Protestant. Uh, I, I am a Biblicist, as Charles Spurgeon once said. Uh, I, I don't fall into these categories very well. Because as a Baptist, what, one of my great ethics is that I understand the, the authority of Scripture to be supreme. And I understand that one of the greatest threats to the uh, application of the authority of Scripture to the Christian is falling into some pattern of tradition, some, some kind of systematic theolog theological tradition which pretends or purports to be biblical but offers a little twist at the end of it or gives you part of the text and then uses confessions and creeds and, and catechisms to instruct you uh, in a way that is something short of the whole counsel of God. It is only the whole counsel of God, as Paul mentioned in Acts chapter 20, that brings us wholeness. It does no good to move from the Catholic tradition, which um, use scripture and tradition, and then go to a Reformation tradition that does exactly the same thing, even while they cry sola scriptura, scripture alone, but then they add their own tradition to that 
And so you end up with the same kind of nonsense, the same kind of fallacious spirituality in the Reformed tradition, the Reformation tradition, that they said that they oppose in the Roman Catholic tradition. I hope you're hearing me here. Uh, this is very important. And I know that I'm threading the eye of the needle. <laughs> I know that we tend to fall into two diff distinct categories. We're either Roman Catholic, and that includes, of course, Greek Orthodox and so on, or we are Protestant. But it's not that clear. It's not that simple. A lot of good things came out of the Protestant Reformation. But a lot of bad things came out of it, too not the least of which, was the severe persecution of New Testament Christians as the Reformation took hold and became a part of the official state church throughout Europe. Uh, those who did not comply with the, the state magisterium came under severe persecution. Those who actually wanted to continue to follow the New Testament guidance into its logical uh, conclusions instead of going to a degree and then stopping, creating a tradition, calling it the state church tradition, the Protestant state tradition, instead of the Catholic state tradition. They were persecuted severely. That's just church history. You can read it for yourself. Uh, untold tens of thousands of New Testament Christians were put to death, executed, persecuted, chased down, murdered, in, in many cases, uh, either by the Roman Catholic state church or the Protestant state church. These are the kind of things that just don't get talked about. Most Christians don't even understand their own history. And so what Scott and Doreen are doing here is they're presenting a, uh, a real problem, and I respect them for that. But what they're doing is they're presenting it within another lens of tradition that is just as fallacious in many ways as the Roman Catholic tradition that has its own art and statuary and its own problem. And in fact, I think most of the um, chosen is is being promoted and supported by Roman Catholic uh, uh, sources. And so it, it, it is a problem. But again, you don't fight tradition with tradition. You don't fight falsehood with tradition. You fight falsehood with truth. And you fight it with the full scope and warrant of the scripture, not your own religious tradition. Scott goes on even to quote John Calvin as saying that our hearts are idol factories. That is a, a true quote by John Calvin. Uh, back in my day, I used to quote that and think it was very clever. Our, our hearts are, are idol factories. That's all we do is create idols with our, in our hearts. And I, and I know that sounds very pious. And I know it sounds very um, profound, deep. <laughs> but let me ask you, if you are in Christ, is your heart an idol factory? Is it really? No, it's not. God has taken the stony heart out of you and given you a new heart of flesh. He has written his law upon your heart and your mind. Your heart is now uh, a, a, in possession of the Spirit. Now, are there still draws and lures and, 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 and there's still a, a pull by the flesh? Yes, of course there is. 
Is there still a pull or a temptation to idolatry? Of course there is. Our, our physical bodies need to be disciplined. We need to put to death the deeds of the body. We need to bring our bodies into line. But we are not under obligation to the flesh. I've said this before. It's important to understand that we have an obligation, Paul says in Romans 8, but it is not to the flesh to walk according to the flesh. That's the difference. Under the old covenant, you saw the law, you saw it was just, good, and holy, but you couldn't keep it. You were in slavery to sin and slavery to the flesh. Under the new covenant, the, the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. So we have an obligation now, but it is not to the flesh. It is not to sin. It is to walk by the spirit. No one who's relying upon the spirit, and listen to me carefully now, no one who is receiving the counsel of the Holy Spirit is going to want to worship anything but the true God. No one who's walking in the Spirit, who's receiving the counsel and ministry of the guidance of the Spirit, is going to want to do anything but worship God as he asks us to worship him. And that is, by the way, in spirit and in truth. John chapter 4. So I just wanted to present this to you today to remind you that that when you see a video that says something like two biblical reasons not to watch the chosen i mean i hoped that i was going to hear two biblical reasons for not to watch the chosen but what i got was two uh, reformed reasons two reformation reasons taken from their tradition pointing me back to the law as as the reason for me not to watch the chosen. Listen, the reason we ought not watch the, uh, the chosen is because it will take us away from the simplicity of our impurity, of our de devotion to Jesus Christ. We are going to see Jesus someday. Hallelujah. We are going to see our Lord face to face. And when we see him, I don't want to have any images of what I think he's supposed to look like when I come to that day. Paul's very clear. I've quoted this many times in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, that there are going to be those who come along preaching another Jesus, operating under a different spirit and offering you a different gospel. And he said in verse 2 of chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promise you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may be somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Listen, we worship the risen Christ of the Bible, not a cinema. People say, well, I don't worship the film. I don't worship that picture. You know, worship is very subtle. I've heard people say after watching The Chosen, oh, I just love the person who plays Jesus. I just love how, I just feel so, so much closer to Jesus now having watched that film. That is the language of worship, folks. Don't get those images in your head. We'll see him one day. And I don't want to ever hear in the back of my mind when I see my risen Lord standing in front of me, 
Huh. Well, that wasn't what I thought he'd look like. I don't want to have some presupposed image of what Jesus is going to look like in my head when I see him face to face. I don't want anything that I have to has going to compete with that image of him in front of me at that point. I don't want any previous experience to taint his face when I see it. So be careful. Be careful. A lot of what gets called biblical is simply another form of tradition. I've told you today to be careful for these people who tell you that the law is still in force. Oh, they the ceremonial law is not. Oh, and the civil law is not. But the moral law is. That's a, a tripart division of the law that the Bible does not support. You can't find anywhere in the New Testament where the apostles or Jesus taught that somehow the law was going to be divided up and you have to keep one but not the other two parts. That's just not how it works. The law has been fulfilled. And if you are in Christ, let me read that and I'll close. If you are in Christ, you are, there is no, for, no condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because in through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life, has, is the spirit that gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law, the whole law, including what they would call the Ten Commandments, the moral law, was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The law could not be kept for those who were in the flesh. Christ came to become a sin offering and so condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, no longer in tablets of stone, but in hearts and minds written by the Spirit the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So please, take the issues that come up in your life and look to the text of Scripture. Don't set aside your study Bibles even. Set aside your catechisms. Set aside your creeds and your confessions. I know there's even a version of the ESV out now that's called a cradle, where you have the Bible itself coupled with all kinds of creeds and confessions and catechisms. It's just, it just never ends. <laughs> Scripture is sufficient in itself. The Spirit is God's sufficiency who works through the Scripture. The Spirit in you is God's change agent. God himself is at work in you. 
through the guidance of the scriptures to transform you and conform you into the image of his son. Don't get waylaid. Don't get distracted with traditions, whether they're Protestant traditions or Catholic traditions, matters very little. Well, may the Lord strengthen you. May the Lord continue to give you and your family great blessing as you learn to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love each, each other and your neighbor as yourself. Amen. <laughs>